The idea was that it would be really interesting if a philosopher, that's me, a political scientist and policy expert, that's Jeremy, and a computer scientist, that's Maron, came together and taught a class on ethics, public policy, and technology. We thought that was important here at Stanford because Stanford is one of the most important places in which people come to get technical skills and then go off into Silicon Valley. You're listening to the Innovation Civilization Podcast, and my name is Wahid. My guest today is Professor Rob Reich, who's one of the three Sanford professors who wrote the latest book, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong, and How Can We Reboot? Sometimes my colleagues joke in the computer science department that the 21-year-olds on campus are obsessed with solving the typical problems of 21-year-old boys. How can we get someone else to do our laundry for us? How can we find a way to deliver a lunch to How can we find a way to make it easier to write a paper? Those are fine problems. I don't have any objection to them. But are they the most urgent problems of humanity? No, not even close. Having a more diverse group of people with the technical skills, thinking about the problems that affect lots of people distant from Silicon Valley, that would lead to a different approach to thinking about the problems that technology could solve. Professor Rob talks about the friction we have today with massively changing technology and our institutions. There's this wonderful quote from Albert Einstein that we use in the book from 1932 at the beginning of the nuclear age. Einstein wrote that technology could have delivered to humanity extraordinary benefits and unlocking of human creativity. But because our institutions have not accelerated their development at the same rate as technology and science, without the institutional adaptation to scientific possibilities, it turns out that technology is like like a razor in the hands of a three-year-old. We also talk about the problems with big tech and what's the way forward. The biggest problem right now with big tech is that there are a set of negative externalities, a bunch of byproducts of their great successes that are being dumped at the doorstep of other people to clean up and to pay for misinformation and disinformation that circulates online in social media is one example of this. We also talk about the power of computer science to shape our world and what that means for humanity at large. Computer science is a young profession. Computer science only came into existence in the 1950s and 60s. And computer scientists only got power in the world, really, in the 2000s with the start of Silicon Valley and big tech companies. Computer science and AI and ML professionals are like teenagers. They are newly aware of their power in the world, but their frontal cortex is undeveloped and they're socially irresponsible. And we should accelerate the development of a set of professional norms and regulation and policy orientation that and much more coming right up. Rob, thank you so much for being on the Innovation Civilized Podcast. What a great pleasure to have you here today. It's a real thrill to join you. Thanks so much for having me. Brilliant. Let's get to it then. Rob, you guys wrote a book called System Error, How Big Tech Went Wrong. Can you tell me a bit more about the initial thrust and the motivation to write this book? Like what caused you guys to come up with this in the first place? Yeah, the book has a very unusual origin, at least for three professors writing a book together. We decided about five years ago that 
we wanted to teach a class together and we had no plans to write anything. The idea mm -hmm. was that it would be really interesting if a philosopher, that's me, a political scientist and policy expert, that's Jeremy, and then a computer scientist, that's Maron, came together and taught a class on ethics, public policy, and technology. And mm -hmm. we thought that was important here at Stanford because Stanford is one of the most important places in which people come to get technical skills and then go off into Silicon Valley often and start companies. <laughs> We're joining big tech companies. And the university is known for its extraordinary computer science department, its pioneering work in artificial intelligence and language models and other things. And the technical skills we thought were not being joined with ethical and policy frameworks that are mm. so important out in the 2020s. We started with mm. an idea of just training a new generation of students in this interdisciplinary way, mixing together, integrating ethics, public policy, and technology. After teaching the class one time, we had some good success, we thought. We started mm -hmm. with over 300 students, and then the pandemic struck, and we had more time on our hands than we expected, and we decided we'd try to reach an even broader audience. And so we wrote the book then mm -hmm. during the pandemic. That's really interesting. And we'll come to the fact that how pandemic changed our lives so fast and without us realizing or thinking through about it. Going back to what you mentioned about the interdisciplinary approach to what you guys are doing, we've had a great 200-year run as a species, right, where our socioeconomic conditions have improved dramatically than it's ever been for the last couple of millennia, right? The specialization of knowledge has been quite key in the last 200 years to do that. I'm not a philosopher, but I tend to try to study philosophy. From what I understand is pre-18th century, a lot of the works in science were bucketed under philosophy, right? And that was the Aristotelian way versus when we had the Enlightenment philosophers, and then we had more specialization. Are you trying to say that the specialization of knowledge that we had in the last 200, 300 years was somehow not a good thing? Or is there more to it? Or should we just go back to where things were, where it's more interdisciplinary? What's your take on that? That's a great question. I'm certainly not saying that the specialization of knowledge, a division of labor in production is a bad idea. To the contrary, yeah. just as you suggested, the division of labor and specialization has brought us extraordinary insights, new kinds of knowledge that would have been difficult to have come about any other way. But what makes universities special places is that there are experts in lots of different disciplines all in the same place. For especially powerful technologies, for especially powerful mm -hmm. scientific discoveries, it's important to join the technical and the scientific along with the broader questions about what it is to be human. How can we improve mm -hmm. humanity as such? What does it mean to promote the political aspirations we have alongside of mm -hmm. technologies and science? There's this wonderful quote from Albert Einstein that we use in the book and that I often use in teaching, which is from 1932, at the beginning of the nuclear age, Einstein wrote that technology could have delivered to humanity extraordinary benefits and a kind of unlocking of human creativity. But because our institutions have not accelerated their development at the same rate as technology and science, 
Mm-hmm. Without the institutional adaptation to scientific possibilities, it turns mm-hmm. out that technology is like a razor in the hands of a three-year-old, mm-hmm. a kind of arresting idea. Sometimes I think of, there's this old line, I don't know whether it's true or not, about a scientist who helped invent the rocket ship. Mm-hmm. And when militaries attached weapons to the rockets rather than just going into space, they mm-hmm. asked the scientist what he thought about that. And he said, my job is just to launch the rockets. It's someone else's job to decide where they come down. And I think that's a perfect example of someone with extraordinary scientific skills, but an Mm -hmm. absence of humanistic frameworks for thinking about the power of their work. Mm-hmm. That's where we are right now with computer science and technology. People with extraordinary mm-hmm. technical skills on the frontier doing amazing things with artificial intelligence and machine learning, mm-hmm. but without a broader framework for thinking about how these extraordinary tools and platforms could affect the human species, can affect politics, can affect individual well-being. And yeah. that's why integrating all of these different disciplines in the same class is so important. Yeah. Would you say basically that if someone doesn't act actively think about these questions when trying to come up with these inventions and these technologies, what they do is bring in their different biases, bring in their different presuppositions, as one might call it, into that. And that kind of technology just amplifies those things. And that leads to outcomes that's not great for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. This is not even special about technology. It doesn't seem like Mm -hmm. an especially deep insight, the idea that the questions you ask yourself, the problems you set yourself to try to give an answer, or two are, -hmm. of course, driven by your own experiences. If you're not exposed to a set of issues that you're not aware of, how would you know to go about trying to give an answer to them to solve a problem? Technologists are no different. Sometimes my colleagues joke in the computer science department that the 21-year-olds on campus are obsessed with solving the typical problems of 21-year-old boys. Like, how can we get someone else to do our laundry for us? How can we find a way to deliver a lunch? How can we find a way to make it easier to write a a paper. Those are fine problems. I don't Mm -hmm. have any objection to them, but are they the most Mm -hmm. urgent problems of humanity? No, Mm -hmm. not even close. Having a more diverse group of people with the technical skills thinking about the problems that affect lots of people distant from Silicon Valley, that would lead to a different approach to thinking about the problems that technology could solve. Yeah, that makes sense. Does this point relate to what you guys mentioned in the book, super focus on optimization of some metrics versus ignoring others. This was a contrarian take, I guess, in the book that you guys had that you argued that efficiency is not necessarily a good thing. Can you unpack that a little bit for the audience? What did you guys mean by that? I know on the surface, that sounds ridiculous. What do you mean efficiency Mm. isn't a good thing? Like you're saying, Rob, you prefer things to be inefficient? That sounds obviously Mm. like a stupid idea. But I mean, here's the way to think about it as a philosopher. Getting things done efficiently, solving a problem optimally is only a good thing if the goal of your efficient solution is itself a good thing. To put it differently, Mm. if you do something that's bad in an efficient way, it makes the world worse, not better. Let me give you Mm. an obvious example. During World War II, Hitler got a bunch of engineers and asked them to design concentration camps that would be super efficient at killing human beings. And the fact Mm. that engineers solved that problem efficiently made the world much worse, not much better. Mm. Efficiency Mm. is not in and of itself a good thing. It's only good if the thing that you're trying to do efficiently is independently Mm. judged to be good. That's Mm. why any engineer who thinks about the optimization mindset or doing things efficiently has to have Mm. an equal skill set at evaluating.
evaluating the worthiness of the goal they're trying to do something about. If you have mm. all of these skills at optimization, but no skills at assessing the goodness of the goal, then you're an impoverished engineer. And that's why optimization is a double-edged sword. Who decides whether a goal is worthy or not? I mean, different people have different takes, different backgrounds, different challenges in life. Some things might be more important to others and some things might not be more important. So are you saying that you want to kind of decentralize this whole process? Who decides, basically? You're asking now one of the most fundamental questions of philosophy, but that makes it seem like it's an academic thing. Doing philosophy is something that all of us do as human beings, even if we don't call Mm. ourselves philosophers. Your question Mm -hmm. is fantastic. Who decides? But that's like saying, when I hang out with my friends and we want to do different things, we have to have a conversation about deciding what we're going to do together. Or Mm -hmm. one of my friends has this religious belief and a different friend has a completely different religious belief. How do we decide which one is true or which one is best? Mm -hmm. And all Mm -hmm. of that's just a way of saying these moral evaluations, the idea of thinking about what's good for us and what's good for people, that's an ordinary part of human experience. We have to confront these moral questions. There's no escaping from them. So you can Mm -hmm. either be awake to these ideas. I sometimes say my job as a writer, my job as a teacher is to morally caffeinate people, to wake up, Mm -hmm. to see the moral dimensions, the moral questions that are written into ordinary life. When I say, what goal should engineers try and solve? And you say, who should decide? I say, exactly the right question. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about who should decide. And it shouldn't be just the technologists, not just the engineers. For something as powerful as large language models, having Mm -hmm. only the people inside companies decide what goals are worth solving, what problems are worth solving, is not good enough. We need democratic governance. We need at least much wider stakeholders to be consulted about these fundamental questions. Yeah, that brings us nicely to the next question. Are you saying that some form of quote-unquote stakeholder capitalism, as they call it, is what you think is the way forward? I think that's one piece of the puzzle. Ensuring that experts inside companies are not the only ones making decisions about the uses Mm. of technology or the permissible Mm -hmm. uses. Take what Mark Zuckerberg says about Facebook as an example. Mm -hmm. He has said over and over again, he wishes that Facebook was not in the business of deciding what one could say on on the platform. Like, why should he Mm -hmm. decide and Facebook alone have all the power over content? And he's right about that. He's right. That should be a decision that's not inside the company, but outside the company. Mm -hmm. Finding a way to push some of these ultimate decisions about things as powerful as 2 billion people on a platform and deciding what it's permissible to say is something Mm -hmm. that has to be done in a wider stakeholder way. And even beyond stakeholder capitalism, sometimes maybe it's democratic governments, like we need the public to decide in some way through our elected Mm -hmm. representatives or through other types of mechanisms that at least introduce democracy into the mix. I mean, there's this big question and a thing you guys tackle in the book as well, that for a long time, we've held that democracy and democratic governance is a great thing. The thing you put the code of Winston Churchill who said democracy is yeah. the worst yeah. thing, but uh, except for all the except others, for which all are things. even worse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Given that, if I think about technology, 20th century was all about centralization. So kind of a lot of state planning, the Manhattan Project, yeah. the going to the moon, very 
estate funded, all big companies, your Procter and Gambles. And whereas I see today where there's much more decentralization going on across the market, whether it's crypto or even other stuff there, although there is a bit of centralization there as well. But what I'm trying to get at is, do you guys think that the form of democracy that we have and had over the last couple of decades is conducive enough, is optimized enough, quote unquote, to <laughs> lead us to the right conclusions, especially where technology is headed towards how fast yeah. the technological Good. S curves have become? Yeah. Sure. Oh, man, there's so many ways I could engage that, Wahid. Let me start <laughs> off being myself. I'm just going to be the philosopher here. Sure. Yeah. All right. You're asking a really fundamental question. Why is democracy good in the first place? Mm -hmm. If we had democracy, what could it do for us? You said, like, is democracy up to the task? Is it going to deliver the right answers, like a set of good outcomes? That's one way of defending democracy, is that democracy is a political system that gets good outcomes. And, mm -hmm. you know, an outcome orientation, a view that democracy, by giving voice to all kinds of citizens, is a way of harnessing the knowledge of lots of different people, rather than just concentrating the knowledge in the hands of non-elected leaders and autocratic leaders for whom they get power drunk and they pursue their own interests. I want to point out there's an entirely second way of defending democracy or seeing value in democracy, which is that democracy is a fair process for trying mm -hmm. to decide how we confront problem solving among citizens who have disagreements. Could put in charge a bunch of experts to get us, quote unquote, good answers to questions. They might not know the preferences or ideas of some of the people who are very citizens. Mm -hmm. Democracy is also good on process grounds, independent mm -hmm. of any outcomes. In other words, we might say, I'd rather have a democratic system which guarantees everyone a voice, mm -hmm. even if for some period of time we get less good outcomes. And I don't want to make this so abstract. Like right mm -hmm. now in the world that we live in, you can point to a couple non-democratic societies, China or maybe Singapore, where over the course of the past 30, 40 years, we've gotten extraordinary economic results, real gains in human welfare, lifting lots of people in China in particular out of poverty. You could yeah. say, well, maybe having a beneficent authoritarian in charge mm -hmm. is, is a good idea. Yeah. The yeah. question is, well, do you want to trade off civil liberties and human freedom for some economic mm -hmm. result? What I'm going to say at the end of the day is every political system, the leaders mm -hmm. eventually die. Democracies mm -hmm. are good at stable transitions. And mm -hmm. you take a long time horizon, authoritarian mm -hmm. regimes can get good results over short periods of time? Can they get mm -hmm. good results over hundreds of years or let's just call it even many decades with leadership transitions? Mm -hmm. Much more difficult. In any case, you get my point. Like we can talk about democracy as a process. We can talk about democracy as a set of outcomes. And so how does this fit in with technology here? Well, is democracy up to the task of governing technology, of governing science? Part of that should be an open question. Are we looking for fair processes or are we looking for the right answers? or at least good answers. You, Wahid, used the phrase, which is so typical in certain respects mm. of a technologist. Can democracy optimize for some set of outcomes? Like, mm. is democracy built for the purpose of optimizing a social product? What I want to say is that's a profound misunderstanding of democracy because it overlooks mm. the process, the procedures mm. that democracy brings to us. Can you think of a way of taking a bunch of citizens who have completely diverse preferences and interests interests, mm -hmm. and some mm -hmm. of them radically opposed to one another, and yet still have a decision-making process which allows us to get to some tentative provisional outcomes of policy. Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. democracy is. It's a way of living together amongst people who disagree with them 
themselves without killing each other, without trying mm-hmm. to expel each other from our own our own systems. Democracy is not built for optimizing a social output. It's built for being a fair process that can mm-hmm. get good outcomes. But it's mm-hmm. not an optimization machine. Yeah, that makes sense. So just to kind of summarize in layman terms, I guess what you're saying is it's good for some societies to be poor in the short term so that they can somehow on the long term, it's going to be good for them because of transition of power is going much more peaceful and they're going to have more consensus in the long term or more success in the long term. So you forego the immediate successes, the short term successes that you'd get from a benevolent dictator like Voltaire talks about for the broader long long-term horizon peace and shared outcomes that you would achieve. That's one possibility. A second possibility is that you're willing to sacrifice some material benefit, some economic growth, let's call it, in order to have basic human freedoms, civil liberties in order to express Mm. yourself, the ability to have a freedom of religion or a set of other things, Mm. the ability to criticize the regime you live in. Now, Mm -hmm. if you're in absolutely desperate poverty, very few people think that it's a worthwhile sacrifice. But if you're above yeah. the poverty line and you ask people, do you yeah. prefer more economic growth, but at the cost yeah. of your freedom? Different yeah. people will answer that question in different ways. Yeah, that's a very interesting distinction. Below and above the poverty line, I guess that's a nuance yep. that we don't bring into this Luda's argument that we that's usually right. make, which is quite sweeping. And thank you very much for that. Orthogonal to that, would you say that in terms of regulation that we make for technology, how can we get to a place where we can ha- have more dynamic regulation, in your opinion? You saw AI and ChatGPT in the moratorium yep. imposed by some experts saying that we should slow down. I guess that's what they're trying to do. Uh, yeah. take your approach of thinking through. But irrespective, someone's out there is going to keep building and keep doing stuff. So it's not centralized in any geography, right? All these developments on one company. So how can we ensure that our institutions are made to create dynamic regulations and keep up with tech? Totally reasonable and important question. I'd begin by saying to the kind of engineer or technologist who likes to think about innovation and disruption. Mm. At Stanford, I see so many students come here, get these technical skills, and then think that they can Mm. be deployed in ways on behalf of innovation and disruption within the tech industry. Mm. They're right. But one can also take an innovation approach to institutions and regulation. You can think Mm. regulations of the past have not served us especially well. We need creativity and innovation and human capital to reinvent various forms of regulation for the 21st century for the purpose of Mm -hmm. thinking about steering technology for human benefit. One of the things that's odd about being at a place like Stanford is that very few students get technical skills and say, I'd love to go work for the government or I'd love to go work Mm -hmm. as as a regulator when their own innovation mindset could produce great benefits in certain respects by going to work for government. So Mm -hmm. another way of saying this, Wahid, is just to say sometimes people just point to the government and say, oh, but the people there don't understand and the regulation will be stupid or hold back progress. But in a democratic society, those are a set of choices that we make as citizens, like pointing at Mm. the government saying bad, stupid people is a Mm. way of saying pointing at us saying we just don't have the will to change this. We can take an orientation toward thinking about regulation that just as you put it is more dynamic, more innovative, more inventive for the current moment. I don't want to be describing this as if I'm a utopian. You look Mm -hmm. back the course of the past hundred years and you look at other hugely consequential 
sequential moments in time, like the dawning of the nuclear age, or even, mm-hmm. you know, in our current moment, say gene editing and CRISPR, really, really mm-hmm. powerful technologies. These are places where regulation is expected because we've built up institutions that are designed to try to protect the interests of human beings, or we have mm-hmm. game theory approaches to nuclear weapons. We have a whole set of standards by which we mm-hmm. assess whether or not these technologies are safe. In mm-hmm. artificial intelligence, we just don't have very much of that yet. And you're like, let me put this really critically. Computer science is a young profession. We talked about the division of knowledge before. Computer science only came into existence in the 1950s and 60s. And computer scientists only got power in the world, really, in the 2000s with the start of Silicon Valley and big tech companies. Mm -hmm. Science and AI and ML professionals are like teenagers. They are newly aware of their power in the world, but their frontal Mm -hmm. cortex is undeveloped and they're socially irresponsible. And we should accelerate the development of a set of professional norms and regulation and policy orientation Mm -hmm. towards thinking about the power of AI in particular, because that's what happens in other areas that are more long established. You can't just like tinker in your garage with some drugs and decide to sell it to your neighbors because you want to test Mm -hmm. it on them. That's not possible because we have in place strong regulation to ensure that we have basic protections. We need the same basic guardrails designed for the age of AI. In terms of the cons of drug development, there's the pros of regulations and stuff like that. But the cons is that it's so expensive to actually get a drug to market. There's like oligopolistic behavior, monopolistic behavior there as well, where only the very big, big pharma can really afford to do some of that drug development. Frankly, some of the other options might be that anyone that has an access to like a computer, they can start developing code locally and they can push it to a cloud server or anywhere in the world. They don't have to be in a particular jurisdiction geographically. There are a few distinctions. So just think that the drug development firstly is a bit different systemically to actually code development. And yeah, I mean, what exactly can we learn from that? Is that a good proxy? Good. And you're right to point out differences, to use this as a metaphor. We should not take the regulations designed for drug development development and just port Mm -hmm. them over to artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence. But Mm -hmm. we can learn from the idea that we have guidelines and guardrails for drug development. We can Mm -hmm. purpose build guardrails for artificial intelligence. This idea of democratizing access to AI or open sourcing Mm -hmm. large language models now, everyone gets to play with them because that will be good for innovation. There are some benefits there, but there's also dangers. If these models are as powerful as the people who develop them say they are, huge Mm -hmm. and cheap machines for misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, Mm -hmm. you know, kinds of adversarial uses geopolitically as well as between humans, then we want to install some basic safeguards. And it would be like saying, in my mind, you know, if Mm -hmm. you say open access, that's our fundamental commitment. Well, let's take that and port it back to drug developments. Like right now, Mm -hmm. the world has successfully eliminated smallpox as a disease which kills human beings. The smallpox genome exists right now in a few government laboratories in the world as a way of providing research access to it in case it's necessary in the future. Would you want to say in an age of CRISPR and novel ways of experimenting with drug and drug discovery and drug engineering that we should Mm -hmm. open source the smallpox genome? Let's democratize access to plutonium and uranium. Everyone gets to play with it because what maybe nuclear fission will come about in new ways if we just give everyone Mm -hmm. access. 
You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's where I see not enough mature thinking amongst AIML people about the possible dangers and thinking about just simple guardrails. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to say we should lock large language models in government laboratories and restrict access. I'm trying mm-hmm. to say other fields have developed over the course of time ways mm-hmm. of trying to ensure that there are guardrails and the leading mm-hmm. AI ML developers should step mm-hmm. up and decide that it's their turn to figure out what these are for our current era of AI. That makes sense. What do you make of the argument that when we say guardrails, obviously there's going to be someone to impose those if you're out of those guardrails or impose those guardrails, right? What do you make of the argument that if the US or the countries wherever we live tries to over-regulate AI or any innovation, there's going to be someone out there who is going to do it in another country like a China or some Latin American country or anywhere in the world where there are no regulations like that. And they're going to get the economic benefits. And there's huge economic benefits to be realized because yep. of this decentralized innovation, right? Yeah. Without any guardrails. Yeah. If you try yep. to overregulate, you're just going to chase them off in a different geography and some other country are going to rep the economic benefits. What do you make of that argument, basically? Yep. Yeah, it's a very familiar argument here in Silicon Valley introduce Mm. the idea of regulation and someone says, but China will get all the benefits. (laughs) I just think that's profound misunderstanding, a simple argument for the pursuit of some self-interest amongst people who are either Mm -hmm. investors or employees at certain tech companies. Because Mm -hmm. first of all, China is not a decentralized regime in which innovation flourishes across the board. It Mm -hmm. is a centralized, non-democratic regime in which industry operates at the permission and at the will of the government. So Mm. China has allowed for an amazing array of AI innovations that now in AI Mm -hmm. research are on a par with what we see in other countries like in the United States. But we shouldn't deceive ourselves and say that it's like a decentralized innovation place. Go talk to some of the tech executives who have run afoul of the regime there and ask them how they feel about the the lack of separation between industry and government. All right, Mm -hmm. that's point number one. Point number two is if we in the United States or in other countries who value the rule of law, who value a set of democratic freedoms, want to provide a model for getting the benefits of technology, but not tilting in tilting into authoritarian regimes and surveillance of various forms of the government in our lives, then we have to develop a model in which we steer the benefits of technology that are consistent with our biggest and most important values. We have to make a geopolitical stake in the ground about technology on the frontier that supports democracy and freedom rather than centralization and autocracy. And mm-hmm. the China kind of response is oblivious to that. Yeah. Do you think that nation is quite elusive and pie in the sky? Or do you think that's quite achievable? Well, it certainly seems elusive and difficult to imagine at the moment. But I think mm-hmm. it's in part because we haven't tried. For the past 30 or 40 years, mm-hmm. we have left mm-hmm. it to the engineers and the technologists in the companies to make decisions completely on their own. We are now in the beginning moments of what will be a multi-decade effort to have yeah. a set of new stakeholders that also have a voice in how the future is shaped technologically. Europe has led the way yeah. here with GDP and the Digital Services mm. Act and other things. United States, mm. there are now some initial movements in regulation and policy. And, mm-hmm. you know, take that six-month moratorium petition. And that's a yeah. way of people outside of government saying, we need to take a moment to ensure that the decisions that we make in the next year or two are going mm. to be for the benefit 
people, not get the worst of situations in which these dual-use or multi-use tools can mm-hmm. really end up doing enormous harm to people. Yeah. I want to go back to something that we mentioned before in terms of democracy and specifically you mentioned Plato in yep. your book as well and Plato's idea of philosopher kings. What's wrong with the idea of philosopher kings? I think Plato and the Republic, the analogy of if something's wrong, if you have a health issue, you just don't go out there on the street to ask people, okay, what should I do? What meds should I take? You actually go to a doctor and yeah. expert in that, right? Right. In order to yes. do that. Would you say that people in general, any Tom, Dick and Harry out there has anything worthy to share on these notes versus experts? I just want to understand your take of what do you think is wrong with the philosopher King approach and trusting experts on the issues? Sure. I think Plato is wrong about philosopher mm. Kings. It's not because there's no value for experts. Mm-hmm. There can be experts and we should listen to experts when they're speaking about their particular domain of expertise. Just as you started this conversation about division of knowledge and two centuries of a division of labor and specialization. Yeah. When we go to the doctor, we ought to entrust the doctor with having better knowledge about our health condition yeah. and diagnosis than any random person on the street. The same would be true about a variety of other topics. But when it comes mm-hmm. to politics and the idea of how are we going to live together as one people or in one society, there is no such thing as an expert on that topic. Because if you mm-hmm. want to protect the liberty of people, they're going to make different decisions about what it means to live a good life. That's the brute, mm-hmm. simple fact of human diversity. Give people liberty, they make different choices about how they wish to live. But when it comes to being an expert about a good life, there there are no correct answers to that question. But there are better and worse answers. And trying to get towards the better requires multiple stakeholders, requires many more people involved in decision making, rather than just saying, let's have an expert make a decision for us. Let me add here, since Mm -hmm. even the expert if we put them in charge, are still human beings. They can mm-hmm. get drunk on their own power. You know, the famous line from Lord Acton, yeah. power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Experts yeah. might tilt over into being not so expert anymore when they can pursue their self-interest rather than what's in everyone's interest. Yeah, and I think you also mentioned in the book about Karl Popper, yes. the idea that democracy is optimized or not optimized for. It's basically the outcome it gives is better transition of power so that you don't have dictators stay in power you know, long exactly. enough to destroy everything, right? So that makes sense. I want to move quickly to something which I think you guys mentioned in the book and touched in the book, which is people don't make these decisions in abstract terms or in a vacuum. There are yes. structures built into our current economic conditions, into our policymaking, into our who we are. Part of that also drives the decisions we make. As Charlie Munger says, that tell me the incentives, I'll tell you the outcomes, right? right. So one of the big incentives in in Silicon Valley is getting venture funded. Venture funding means that VCs have a very specific criteria of companies they're trying to fund. You mentioned the 1% hit rate of funding a unicorn and 6% for Y Combinator, which is the best accelerators out there. One of the things in LVCC is, okay, cool, like, is there a big market for it? Are people going to use it? And is it disruptive, quote unquote? As Peter Thiel says, they're trying to create monopolies and monopolies are a good thing. That's how 
the VC model works is that one or two companies has to really hit it out of the park and quote unquote monopolize in a lot of ways in order for your whole fund structure to work because you're probably going to wash two thirds of your fund into the water, right? So how do we get around this funding incentive structure as well as I'm not going to even go to the incentive structure of maximizing shareholder value and profitability for a company, Right. right? So how do we balance these economic incentives that's built in and we're asking a huge thing to undo and unravel these things to do a bit more of stakeholder capitalism. Have you guys thought about what can be a good way forward? Taking this approach of thinking about incentive and then trying to imagine how it is that economists in particular think Mm -hmm. about the incentive structure as a way of explaining how you get particular behaviors is a completely reasonable Mm -hmm. way to think about this. Let me just give a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. Let's imagine you think that with social media and social networks, the core problem is the ad-driven business model. Uh, mm-hmm. If we didn't have ad-driven business models, there wouldn't be an incentive to keep you on the platform in order to serve you more ads, in order for the company to make a bunch of money. A bunch of people say like ad-driven model is the core problem. Mm-hmm. If you think that's the problem, then you change the incentives. Maybe companies should have a disincentive to make the vast majority of their revenue from advertising. And so mm-hmm. one economist, a Nobel Prize winning economist, Paul Romer says, put on tech companies a tax on digital advertising. So there's mm-hmm. a new incentive to try out alternative business models. Maybe like a subscription mm-hmm. is a better way to go if the tax is sufficiently high. That's not rocket science when it comes to policy. That's just basic economic thinking about changing the incentive structure. And mm-hmm. the same is true about the form of the company itself. For example, we have lots of examples. They're not super common, but we still have lots of examples of companies that are nonprofits or B corporations because they mm-hmm. don't want profit maximization to be the main incentive structure for all the decisions in the company. Wikipedia mm-hmm or Mozilla or Linux or Khan Academy, and we could keep going. There Mm -hmm. are philanthropic ways of organizing corporate form that try to set aside the profit motive as the core incentive structure for making decisions. That's, again, not rocket science. These are tools that are already available to you. If you're a new innovator and entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. you want to create a company, you can choose to do it in a B corporation or a nonprofit form and seek philanthropic capital rather than venture capital. We haven't yet even talked about experimentation innovation in the corporate model forms. The B corporations mm-hmm. are perhaps a modest new innovation, but we can still experiment further and we should. Take OpenAI right now. OpenAI, the pioneer behind the yeah. large language model. At GPT, as you probably know, started as a nonprofit. Yeah, I was going to cover that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, being a capped for profit. I mean, it's a really odd model, um, but they are interested in experimenting there because they want to be harnessed to social benefit, and they think mm. that a completely for profit model is not the right incentive structure for social benefit. And just to define your terms, what does a capped for profit mean? Well, you could look on the OpenAI website for this because this is not like a standard business model. They wrote into the contract with their investors this Mm. idea about a capped return. So Mm. the basic, as I understand it, investors in OpenAI will not get any return until Mm -hmm. uh, OpenAI succeeds in certain milestones close to reaching artificial general intelligence. Mm. And when OpenAI reaches those milestones, the returns to the investors are going to be capped and Mm -hmm. other amounts of money, other revenue will then be put back into the company for the social mission. Again, just think of this as an ordinary contract. The investors all knew the terms up front, so this is not violating any law. OpenAI Mm. said, if you want a piece of the company by investing in it, these are the terms that we're offering, and the investors 
agreed to it. So it's all, as it were, by the books. Yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, this model is quite unique, and I hope it's an innovation in terms of your cap table and how your incentive structures are. And hopefully, that's a way forward for a lot of other firms. But generally, I've been around the social enterprise space for a while. I don't know if you've read the works of Nobel laureate Muhammad Yunus, you know, who coined the yeah. term social enterprise. Sure. And I think it's in Bangladesh that, yeah, he came with a for profit and marriage of for profit and non profit, and that worked quite well. But I think they tried to scale it up in a lot of other forms, in a lot of other industries. The results have been quite mixed in terms of that. It's still an open question of what form of the governance structure, your cap table structure, really works in terms of helping in both the social cause as well as the kind of economic incentives and how do you align that. I agree yeah. with you. Mohamed Yunus yeah. is a good example of some experimentation with yeah. basic ideal mm-hmm. incentive structures, and we should yeah. invite more experimentation in that direction. I'm quite keen to see how we unlock this specifically in the tech landscape, specifically within the venture capital landscape. And I think it is a bear market, which is going on right now. You know, all valuations are absolutely crunched right now. We'll see how many kind of firms actually return money to their LPs, right? So yep. yeah, we'll see how much of the social aspect they actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah fair enough. On. I want to kind of start wrapping up. Can you tell me what do you think the biggest problem with big tech is today? Big tech's tools and platforms have transformed the world in ways that have brought us great benefits, but also mm-hmm. a set of negative externalities. They have created a bunch of social consequences that are just like other negative externalities in other businesses. Misinformation and disinformation that circulates online in social media is one example mm-hmm. of this. Another example would be algorithmic bias and unfairness. You get a bunch of predictive accuracy, but if you trained your model on a bunch of data from humans that is riddled with bias, that can be amplified in your own model. Mm-hmm. The companies that develop these products and platforms currently don't accept the responsibility for internalizing these externalities. Traditionally, what happens is we wait for regulation to provide mm-hmm. an incentive structure that changes the incentive calculus. And we're at the yeah. opening moment of an age of that internalization of these negative externalities. Yeah. And just on a tactical level, do you have any good proxies or examples of how to code while taking into account the second and third order effects and externalities that you guys talk about? What's a good way to do that? Yeah, great. This is going to be a predictable answer, but my answer Mm. is going to be hire a social scientist to work alongside the developer who's writing the code. The social Mm. scientist is trained to try to measure and identify the social effects of various things in the world. Hire a Mm -hmm. philosopher who's going to help by what counts as a good question or a good problem to solve. That's the Mm -hmm. idea behind the class that we teach and behind the book, that when you integrate a philosophical perspective, a social science and policy perspective, and a technical perspective all together, you get much better solutions to the problems that are worth solving. Yeah, that's brilliant. We'll wrap it up with that, Rob. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, yeah, hopefully your book makes the rounds. And yeah, really looking forward to what are the more further constructive discussions at a more tactical level, maybe in certain industries and certain domains, we can by getting inspired by the book. Thanks so much. Wahid, it's really, really a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.